This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. This week we reach perhaps the most concrete section of Dogen's universally recommended instructions for Zazen. This paragraph is most of what you would expect from just sitting instructions. And some of it's very straightforward, but I'll add a little bit for good or bad. At your sitting place, spread out a thick mat, check, and put a cushion on it. Sit either in the full lotus or half lotus position. In the full lotus position, first place your right foot on your left thigh, then your left foot on your right thigh. You can try. Like so. In the half lotus, simply place your left foot on your right thigh. It's not so bad. One thing that Dogen is clear about elsewhere, maybe even in this text, is that when you sit full lotus, even though it looks harder, it's easier the more deeply you cross your legs. So what you really want is for your toes to hang over the edge of your thigh. If you're going to sit this way, it helps. Uh, But it, it takes some time. And there are very valid arguments suggesting that it may not be the most important pursuit of your life (laughs) to develop this ability. In the half lotus, simply place your left foot on your right thigh. So, let's do this as well. The same rule applies. If you're really going to sit in the half lotus, you get your foot way up. And you push your other foot way in. So it isn't, this is not a wide posture, actually. Earlier in the year when most of you started coming and we started talking about Zazen, I think I recommended that, I I said that the half lotus was not my favorite because it's so unbalanced. And I'll say that again here. If If you sit in the half lotus or the full lotus, I think it's important to alternate feet every time to make sure that you're not just doing it one way all the time. Uh, I have no idea why these instructions suggest that there's one way to do the full lotus or one way to do the half lotus. It's completely counterintuitive. I'm still a big fan of, of what we might call the quarter lotus, in which your foot simply rests on your calf. This is very balanced. It makes it much easier for most people to get their other knee on the ground so that there's some sense of having a a tripod. It's a very strong pose. The only thing about this, and I've been been playing with this recently because at, at work we sit after lunch 
And after lunch, it's easy to get tired. In a monastery, you would never eat after a meal. Never, because your body's working on something else. So, it, and, and you don't want to encourage the practice of sitting when you're tired, because then it becomes a habit for the mind, that as soon as you sit down, you start kind of going into a sleepy space. What I've noticed is that when I sit in the half lotus, I'm just naturally much more alert, half lotus or full lotus, than if I sit in this position here with my legs a little bit more spread out. In terms of balance, this is very, very good. But it's also kind of a soft pose. And so there may be times when you find that it's better to push yourself a little bit, not because there's some inherent value in the pose, but because it's a little bit like slapping yourself in the face, right? Or splashing cold water. Um, it's, it's, it's worth testing these out and seeing how they change your understanding of sitting and how they change your posture. Tie your robes loosely and arrange them neatly. There's this phenomenon after Thanksgiving dinner, and Thanksgiving was yesterday, right? There's kind of the stereotype where guys unbutton their pants, right? Because they've had so much to eat, and they need a little extra space. That's actually very applicable to sitting, right? If, if, you're, uh, if your pants fit you perfectly when you're standing, they're probably not great for zazen. Because you want to be able to breathe, and you want to be able to relax here. And so, of course, the way that I'm dressed is so amenable to that. Because it's, I'm just wrapped with little cords, and I can make those cords as loose or as tight as I want. It's very nice. Though, as I've also told people, if you only ever wear elastic pants, as I do, you may wake up one day and find that you've gained a lot of weight and you had no idea. <laughs> there are no indicators. Then place your right hand on your left leg. And by left leg here, actually, we mean your left foot. Because your left foot, if you're sitting in the full lotus, is elevated, right? And then your left hand on your right palm, thumb tips lightly touching. Okay. What I was taught is that the middle knuckle aligns with the middle knuckle. And the thumbs just barely, barely touch as if you're holding a piece of paper between them. Not this, not this. When you sit as he recommends, so he says to put your first, first your right foot on your left thigh, and then your left foot on your right thigh, there is a kind of math to this. This feels right to put your right hand underneath and your left hand on top. If you switch it, it starts to feel a little bit like you're, you're tipping. But that means, if you're really being serious about this, that when you sit the other way, you'd switch your hands, which is almost never done. But this doesn't mean anything, right on top or left on top. 
the right on the right hand on the bottom and the left hand on top is considered a a pre-enlightenment pose whereas the left hand on the bottom and the right hand on top is a post-enlightenment pose so when you look at statues you usually see that the buddha's legs are crossed opposite of the way the dogen is describing and that the hands are opposite of what how he's describing it that is how you sit as a buddha what dogen forgets to point out is that in every single thing he's ever saying he's saying you are already sitting as buddha so sometimes sit like the buddha try it and then the next day go back and then try it again if you've done it one way for a long time and then you switch the first time it feels very transgressive <laughs> like like i wonder if anyone will see me do this straighten your body and sit upright leaning neither left nor right neither forward nor backward this seems very straightforward but of course it's not you're sitting on the edge of a cushion your pelvis is tilted forward your back is not perfectly straight your back is curved inward just a little bit generally speaking your shoulders will feel like their back in order for your head to be in line with where your spine is is going into the cushion for most people especially if you're not used to it there will be a sensation of falling backward and one of the things that you notice if you watch people if you watch a lot of people sitting is that as people get more and more tired they get more and more forward and they don't feel it but actually they're working really really hard to do this kind of leaning tower of pisa version of zazen where their body is rigid but also resisting gravity all the time you can sit like this for a retreat and never notice it until someone pulls you back and it's like a dream in which you're falling backwards and then you realize oh that's straight that is not at all what i thought it was but when you do that your breathing opens up and that's the first test of anything it's it's just like doing yoga If you can't breathe in a pose, something's probably not quite right about the pose. Find the way that you can breathe. Align your ears with your shoulders and your nose with your navel. This means that it sometimes looks as if people are kind of pulling their chin backward but it's more accurate to say that they're pulling the tip of their head upward and when you do that it it looks as if you're pulling your chin in just a little bit rest the tip of your tongue against the front of the roof of your mouth with teeth together and lips shut I don't want to argue with Dogen on this point. But I want to raise a question and I wish that I could discuss it with him and bring forward the evidence. The evidence 
against this point is that when we study brain waves and brain patterns, what we see is that putting, situating your tongue on the tip of your mouth is a signal to your brain that you're going to speak. So you're activating your speech centers, which may not necessarily be ideal. Your speech centers, of course, are connected with forming thoughts as words, whether you speak them or not. The easiest way to turn that off is to rest your tongue flat on the bottom of your mouth. That sends no signal to your brain that you're about to say something and that you need to formulate what that is. Now, I hesitate to say something like this because this is an experiment and it's a controlled experiment. And if you don't do it the way that everybody's been doing it, you're doing a different experiment. But I bring it up because I think if you're a normal person, you're going to experiment anyway. You're going to test little things along the way as you sit. And you're going to say, what if I do this? And what if I do this? So I just offer this one up as, as an area of inquiry. Always keep your eyes open. This is the only always. Right? The rest of it is, just, well, sit up straight, do this, do that. Always keep your eyes open. Why? Because the moment you close your eyes, you're gone. You're gone. One of the most compelling ways to study Zazen without doing Zazen is to try to watch yourself fall asleep. At night, when you close your eyes and you watch yourself forming three-dimensional worlds and then jumping to another one, try to watch that without grabbing the scene that you like, without trying to follow a particular track, without trying to enter into a particular conversation, without saying, oh, this is a nice beach, I'll try to stay here. Watch how your brain jumps. What you're getting is a technicolor version of what your brain is doing all the time. Right? And that impulse to stay in one place is the same impulse that you have in Zazen all the time to pursue an interesting thought pattern. It's a really interesting way to fall asleep. You can surprise yourself. But you can also have this sense of recognition as you do it. It's powerful in the experience of it, though, because your eyes are closed. If you want to cut it off, open your eyes. I, uh, sleep is the enemy of Zazen. There's just no other way to put it. Other teachers uh, traditionally have said that if you start to fall asleep, first, open your eyes wider. What we would, we would call Bodhidharma sitting. You know, this version of Zazen, right? And if you still find yourself falling asleep, then maybe you know, rub your face a little bit. Try and get something, something happening. If that still doesn't work, 
Now it gets harder because you're probably going to bother someone. Don't slap yourself in the face because that really is distracting to other people. But traditionally, say the rules would say stand up. Even if it's even if the rules are to not stand up, stand up. Because the last thing you want is to fall asleep. The last thing you want is to form that pattern. Because the next time that you sit down, your body will remember how comfortable it was when you sat there and your eyes were closed and you kept that posture and you kind of went to that other place. And what you'll find, especially in a retreat, uh, but this can happen over a period of weeks as well, stretched out, is that maybe you fall into a fantasy one day sitting and your eyes are closed and it becomes really developed and really interesting. And it's like a book that you put down. And so a week later you come back to sit and you sit down and you kind of get your posture figured out and then you just close your eyes and it's like you're opening that book on your nightstand and it's just right where you left it. People can spend years reading that book and it's all because their eyes are closed. I speak from experience on this. This isn't uh, speculation. And then finally, he says, breathe softly through your nose. When we breathe, we breathe into our abdomens, or we imagine that we do. And so the movement that we see tends to be in and out, not up and down. When you're really tense and you're breathing, you'll find that your shoulders are going up and down. But if you found this posture, they don't need to. A teacher who died just recently, Kyogen Carlson, he wrote, I think, uh, Zazen instructions at one point that involved imagining that your body was expanding outward to the sides. So he was very specific about this. And I don't encourage you to do this, except, again, you're going to experiment anyway. His vision of breathing was that when you, when you inhale, the breath starts at your abdomen and you feel yourself expanding this direction. And that expansion goes up and up and up. And the breath is following the back of your body and then rolling down the front. And then on the exhalation, you push it out in reverse and feel yourself contract and become thinner, but not in the way that, that you're actually becoming thinner. It's a really interesting way to think about breathing. It makes you very aware of the progression of the breath. I'll give you one more. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, at one point, uh, I think when he himself knew he was dying, started telling uh, some people that when you breathe out, you should breathe out so completely that it's, it's as if you're dying, that you kind of choke out the breath. So you go beyond what you think you should. This is not a traditional way of describing breathing in Zazen. Usually we would say that we let the breath breathe itself so that 
on any given day you might be breathing very deeply and on another day you might be breathing in a more shallow way and that isn't a concern. The, the issue is to breathe naturally and to let yourself breathe. My own compromise, because I have found it useful, is to have highly self-conscious zazen for the first few breaths. When I sit down, I find my posture and I'm very careful about it. And when I breathe, I breathe much more deeply than I can naturally in that moment. Because it's hard to breathe deeply when you first sit down. Later, it might happen on its own. But I force myself to take deep, deep breaths. And then when I push out, I push out all the way until, again, it's, it's as if that's the last one, until I'm wringing myself out. And then I breathe in again. This isn't violent. It's just very intentional. And I'll do this for maybe six or seven breaths. And then I'll let it go. And let it become whatever it is. And I find, especially if I'm distracted, that that's a way of, of spending a little time saying, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. You don't want to do it for the whole period because then you're shaping your experience. You're saying Zazen has to feel like this. But I personally don't see any uh, real danger in giving some shape to that experience when you sit down, just in the same way that we rock our bodies a little bit to find out where our spine should be and we, you know, we, we, we nest. We can nest a little bit internally as well. And then we can just see what happens. Zazen is, not just Zazen, but Zen practice is so often that, I don't want to say friction, but it's walking that line between letting go into a completely natural act and being utterly self-conscious in what you're doing. Both things are at play. Both things inform what this tradition is. And Zazen is maybe the most obvious example of that when you actually try it. You feel those two, those two things pulling all the time. How things really are and how you're shaping them. I'll say just a couple more words about this because the next paragraph is too big. I was always taught that Zazen doesn't start when you sit on the cushion. Zazen begins at the moment that you decide you're going to come here. Whatever that moment is when you commit, when you tell your friend, no, I'm not going to meet you for dinner, whatever that is. That starts to affect your frame of mind. It starts to affect the way that you walk. It starts to affect the way that you're thinking. And so you come here, and when you open the door, you don't just throw open the door. You're already doing Zazen. You open the door into Zazen. In whatever way that means for you. And you close the door 
on this space and you come up the stairs knowing that this is a place where people are practicing, it's kind of sneaky. And you quietly get yourself together and you quietly take off your coat and you hang it up with two hands and you arrange your shoes. Everyone here is pretty good about arranging their shoes. You should see where I work. But in that frame of mind, you understand that everything you do is an expression of your mind. So if you kick off your shoes, left and right, that's an expression of your mind. If you place your shoes together, out of the way from other people, that's also an expression of your mind. And then you come in here, and you choose a spot, and whatever you do, you try not to just walk in front of a lot of other people, and you try not to stomp around. And you sit down, and you start to do all the things that we just talked about. And then, when you get up, you're still doing zazen. Because you've already decided you're going to come back next week. So there's no gap. And this carries you. In the previous paragraph, he asks, how could that be limited to sitting or lying down? It's useful for us to talk about the mechanics of Zazen, but it's a horrible mistake for us to talk about Zazen as this isolated thing that we do. I don't see so much of it here, but I used to, at another, at the uh, Zen center I was, I was in in Alaska, we sat every morning, and so people would show up late. You know, it was hard for people to get there on time. And some people would very gently enter, and other people, wanting to get there just before the bell, would kind of run in the door and dive across the room and land on their cushion, you know, half lotus with their hands folded, and... And it was a great joy to watch it, but it was terrible. <laughs> As if Zazen is something you can be late for in that way. Right. If that's how you sit down, then the way that you stand up is the same. You hear the last bell and you go, woo, and you get up and you go home. Right? You skip. But if you understand that this is not limited to sitting, then suddenly you're thrown this incredibly weighty and complex question about your life and about what it means for the Zazen bell to never ring. I hope so anyway. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.